On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Dakota, and Dakota was isolated by a physically abusive narcissistic hero. It's a story of addiction, being good enough, coercive control, guilt, reverse psychology, and escaping with your life. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Dakota. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here with us today. And if you want to be a guest on our show like Dakota is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. Please read all of the instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form, press the Submit button, and please do send us everything in the format that we ask for on that page. And today we're going to hear Dakota's story. Dakota was someone who was an addict and then found her way into an abusive relationship. And there's a lot kind of going on this dynamic. It's um, an interesting dynamic because you're addicted to, in this case, drinking, and then you also get addicted to a, a human being. There's an addiction that is formed there. So it's a really interesting episode. This episode is has a lot of physical abuse talk, so a big, big, big trigger warning for everyone. You know, this episode is not for the faint of heart. There is some graphic descriptions of physical abuse eventually in this story. And it's a scary story. And Dakota had to really escape for her life. Her partner became a very uh, dangerous, dangerous person. So a big trigger warning right there. This is going to be out for October 31st, the last day of Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Um, And, you know, spread awareness. All, all you can uh, about what is going on for the court systems that are broken uh, any way you can uh, support your local shelters uh, your local agencies as as well and I really want to thank uh, Dakota for being here uh, with us today she's gonna not just help a lot of people but she's gonna save someone's life by um, telling her story of what happened she was a very quick thinker so with that being said Dakota the floor is now yours. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I've been wanting to kind of open up about my story for a while now, and it's been several years since since it all went down. But I, I finally feel like I've gotten to a point where I can um, talk about it. So thank you so much. I feel like my story involves a lot of addiction because I am a recovering alcoholic. I've been sober for seven years and my sobriety date is January 8th, 2015. And so my life has drastically changed since all of this has happened. But I want to kind of start out talking about when I went to rehab in 2012 and we were asked to write a goodbye letter to our drug of choice. And my goodbye letter was to alcohol. And I don't have a letter, but I, I remember that 
I wrote about how alcohol was there for me in the good times and the bad times. Um, alcohol was there when nobody else was, when I was feeling grief or loneliness. Alcohol immediately numbed the pain and made me feel like I could go on. It was also there when I wanted to celebrate or when I was excited until one day it turned on me and I was, it was no longer taking away my pain. It was creating it. And I did everything I could to try to get that relationship back with alcohol that I had in the beginning, but it, I just could not get that back. And like chance after chance and relapse after relapse, it just got worse um, every time. And it was just kicking my ass. And I had, I honestly was at a point where I had no idea how I was ever going to get away from it. And, and at the same time, I, I didn't really know how, how I would live my life, not being, not having alcohol. It was my biggest support system. It was my best friend, but I learned that one day at a time is how I was going to get away from it and searching deep within myself to find the reason that I needed the alcohol in the first place. And learning that alcohol was not working for me anymore and that the relationship I had with it could never go back to the way it was. And I share that because I had no idea that in just a couple of years, I would be feeling the exact same way about the man who swept me off my feet. So saying that, <laughs> I'm going to talk a little bit about just what, what my life was like um, and how I came to realize I was an alcoholic. And I, I believe I was born an alcoholic. I I always felt like something was missing. Even as a, a small child, I remember, you know, seeing my friends be really good at sports or really good at school and, um, or really good. They had a hobby or like extracurricular activity that they excelled at. And I was just kind of mediocre at everything I did. And I didn't have that one thing that I, that I was good at. And I always felt a little bit less than, and I explain it as like having a hole in my soul. And I tried to fill it with all these things and, and nothing, nothing could fill that, that hole in my soul. And I had a good childhood. I had, you know, loving parents and brother and sister and friends and roof over my head. And I, you know, I think the turning point in my childhood was when my dad passed away when I was 15. I was, it was the worst, you know, the worst years as a teenager going through all these changes and trying to figure out who I am. And then my, my healthy 41 year old dad passed away suddenly. Um, he was actually ice fishing and fell through the ice and died of hypothermia, which is, you know, that in itself is just like very tragic and traumatic. So dealing with that was, was so difficult. And I felt like I couldn't relate to anybody at school anymore. I couldn't relate to to anybody because I didn't know anyone who's 15 whose dad died. And I definitely didn't know anyone who's who lost somebody the way I did. So that's kind of where the uniqueness and and victim, you know, feeling like a victim came in. And and I, I do know that that I was a victim of of loss. Um but I kind of used it in a way that wasn't healthy. So I I finally I I learned like oh, wow, I have this grief and I can like use it to get out of class and I can use it to get sympathy from people and to like get extra time on my homework. And, and I, kind I, I mean, I was definitely grieving, but I was manipulating that grief into getting something that I wanted and I could have dealt with it in a healthier way. 
Um, but I immediately started drinking after my dad died because that it just I took that first drink and that hole in my soul that I was talking about disappeared. I felt like a complete human being for the first time in my life. I felt pretty. I felt taller. I felt thinner. I felt funnier. And I felt like important. I felt like, like I was wanted and I was needed. And so that's what I went with. I was like this, I finally found what I'm good at. I'm not good at sports. I'm not good at school. I'm good at drinking. And I, and I went with that and I became the party girl. I became the person who could get the alcohol underage. I was the one showing up at parties and everyone was happy to see me. And, and, and I liked it. I loved it. I loved the way it made me feel. I mean, I wasn't drinking every day at 15, but if I wasn't drinking, I was thinking about drinking. So it, it immediately took over and just, I was, I was addicted and I didn't know it then, but, but I feel like the obsession had already formed. So before your dad passed away, uh, you not feeling like, you know, sports was for you or school was for you. Uh, did you have, you had self-esteem maybe with friends and social life, but did you have self-esteem or did you feel like you were competent in uh, other ways? And did you have maybe a lack of self-confidence in some ways? And then in some ways you did have self-confidence? Um, I feel like I had self-confidence in my personality and that I was, I was the funny one. Like I was always voted funniest. And But I, I, I grew up with a bunch of friends whose parents were all very wealthy and we weren't poor, but we, we weren't rich. We didn't have money like them, but we ate all three meals and we had a, a roof over our head. Um, but I, I did feel insecure about that. Um, I think the one thing I've always been like, okay, I got this is, you know, personality and, and being able to be funny, but um, that can only get me so far in life. Uh, so I was always looking for something a little bit more. And, you know, you said alcohol kind of made you this focal point of things that you were the person. Mm -hmm. So you discussed, you know, being from a different set of circumstances as far as uh, money goes. Does this help you fit in a little bit more than it does before and takes that thought process or stigma in your mind away? It definitely helped me fit in. I feel like it was like all of my friends' families owned like hotels or like, you know, they lived on the water in these big houses and they would have the parties there. But it's like the party wouldn't be as fun until I showed up with the alcohol. So it's like they may have been these rich kids that had everything, but I was the one who was bringing the cheap beer. <laughs> so this is so this is your contribution here. Like yes. this this is how I'm going to bring my thing to the party that I am the party and that this is my I my identity to fit into this situation. Yeah, so it, it was very much it turned into who I was and who I you know, wanted to be, and I was happy with it um, for a while. I did, you know, there were consequences pretty quickly. I got my first DUI when I was 16 years old. I had just gotten my license. I totaled my mom's car, but people, you know, you know, brushed it under the rug and they're like, well, this poor girl is grieving. Her dad died less than a year ago. You know, she's she's struggling. Anyone would be struggling and, you know, she needs help and love and support. And it's like, I, 
I wanted that love and I wanted that support because I felt like half of my support system was ripped out of my life so quickly. Um, so the, the consequences started pretty quickly. I did end up graduating, um, continuously partying. I graduated. I, I went to, to college for a couple of years just because that's what everyone else did. I had, I was, had no interest in school. I had no major. I think I had a, a liberal arts major, which is, you know, for people who don't know what they want to do. And my, but my major was partying. I was, I had a fake ID. I was in the bar. I was in the bars at by 15. I remember I had my permit and I would be driving these 22 year old people around. Cause I, you know, I was the least drunk out of everyone. And I, all I had was my permit. And it's like, I put myself in so many dangerous situations, but, um, so I was frequenting the bar and all of that. And I ended up dropping out of school and just focusing on just working my, my little restaurant job and, and partying. And, and, um, it, it eventually led to, to drug use, um, cocaine just because it helped me drink longer you know I was able to drink a lot more I was able to stay awake and drink a lot longer um so it just like supplemented you know it was just like a little added extra boost so that I could do more drinking which was my main focus so uh, I think it's fair to say that you had some self-worth issues uh when it came to drinking when you were younger fitting in with your friends, uh, your richer friends and, you know, kind of creating your identity or your role out of that to, to fit in. And then you can combine that with your dad passing away. And eventually here you are and your life is out of control. And you told me that you ended up moving to another state, hoping that things would improve, that you get a fresh start. But Things really don't get better. Uh, and then you end up meeting uh, what happens to be your future husband, who the story is not about, but you have an unplanned pregnancy. Uh, then you do get married before the baby is is born. And uh, in, in the process before your baby is born, you really do start to change your life and your life gets back on track. So tell us what happens there you know, I didn't drink my whole pregnancy and I had, I felt so good. I felt, I felt excited and happy suddenly. Like I'm going to have a baby. I'm going to be the best mom. I'm going to make his baby food organic. And I'm going to, you know, I, I had all these ideas. I've read every book and, and I was going to be super mom. And, and I was in the beginning. And then, and then I stopped breastfeeding and I was like, hmm, maybe I can have a glass of wine. So I did. And, and, I had one glass that night and then, you know, it turned into every night I'd have two and then it turned into three and then it turned into a bottle and then it turned into as much as I could drink before I passed out. And that's difficult when you have a baby to get up with in the morning. And um, I felt like crap in the morning after I drank and, and I heard that the little hair of the dog would help me feel better. So I would have like one beer in the morning. Cause I knew like one beer would help me feel better. And then my baby would take a nap and I could nap too. And, and that one beer turned into two and then it turned into three. And it's like, there were multiple times where my husband had to call into work and be like, I'm not coming in. Cause I was passed out by 10 AM. And that is not what I thought super mom would look like. 
That's not what I thought I would ever be like. It wasn't who I was. And I didn't want to, you know, it's like my baby was everything to me. And I, and I was putting him in arms way just because of alcohol. And I was like, this is, this is, this is the thing that usually makes me feel good and happy. And now it's starting to turn on me and make me feel terrible. Um, it, it just keeps going like this. We end up, the geographical cure happens again. We moved back to my hometown and, and where I immediate, where I um, ran from previously. We, then we ended up moving to another state where, where my, where my now ex-husband is from. And it's just, everything was progressing. It was just getting worse and worse and worse. No matter how many times I would try to drink moderately, it just kept getting worse. And I didn't understand why. And I didn't understand why I kept going back because it was kicking my ass. I, and, and I, I, so most of the time I didn't want it. And, and so I would stop and I would stop for weeks and I would, I would stay stopped until I had to drink again. And then I would drink until I had to stop. And it was this cycle drink until you have to stop, stop until you have to drink. Um, and it was insanity. It was absolute insanity. Um, insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. And that's what I was doing. It got to the point, my rock bottom was, was when my, my husband got sick and tired of me doing the same thing over and over again. And he kicked me out of the house and my son was, uh, three or four at the time. And he kicked me out and he's like, you're on your own. And he gave, he handed me two garbage bags filled with whatever he could throw in there. And off I was. I didn't have a car. I didn't have a license. I didn't have, I think we just got some tax money and he gave me half the tax money and said, good luck. And I, so then I, I was living in a hotel for a little while and trying to just figure out like, how did I get here? Like how, <laughs> I feel like I was, it, it was just, it all just happened so fast. And suddenly I was this person I didn't even recognize. And I would look in the mirror and be like, who are you? Like, what? <laughs> how did we get here? And I, I ended up, you know, kind of admitting complete defeat and saying, I need help. And I, I moved into a transitional home for women. Um, and it housed about 18 women. I think there were like nine or 10 there at the time. And, and we got meals and we got a bed and we got, you know, a safe place to be. And we had to go to meeting, uh, meetings and, um, get a sponsor and, and so I finally felt like, okay, I think I have a path. I think I, I know that I can do this. And, and I could see a light at the end of the tunnel. I could see that maybe I can live without alcohol. Um, I can live without my best friend who's supported me for the last 10 years. So I felt, you know, I felt good. I felt safe. I felt it was, it was rock bottom. So it was also filled with a lot of depression and and anxiety and loneliness and, and shame and all of that. But, but I, I finally saw light and that's when I met my abuser. So when you're in this home, um, you know, you're not supposed to get into any sort of relationship when you're in active uh, recovery. So for you, as this is happening, is this part of your frame of mind as far as like, I'm not going to get into a relationship. This is not what I'm here for. And, 
you know, we're about to really hear a story of the hero savior uh, type of story. So I guess as far as your dad not being there anymore and this void you were trying to fill, is it fair to say that you're looking for a savior or at least someone to maybe look up to uh, for help and guidance? Definitely. And um, I mean, I'll be the first to say that I have daddy issues. Like people joke around about that, but, but losing a parent at such a young age, it's like that, that I, I no longer had a dad. Um, I didn't have somebody to come to, to basketball games. I didn't have anybody to, to lean on when, you know, people were being mean to me, you know, as I didn't have that. And so obviously I craved that. And, and I still catch myself like, you know, um, staring off at a mother and, or a father and a daughter having breakfast together and, and smiling. And I, and I get teary eyed because it's like, I didn't have that. And I, and I, you know, I long for that, but it's, it's been, um, 21 years. So it's like, I've, I've worked through some of that, but, but I do think that, that I was definitely, um, subconsciously looking for somebody to, to save me and take care of me. Um, when I was in that transitional home, the last thing on my mind was another relationship because I, I mean, I was still married. We weren't divorced. Um, I, I just wanted to not look in the mirror and hate myself anymore. That's all I wanted. Um, and so I, I felt, I felt safe there. I felt loved. And one of the things they say in the program is we're going to love you until you can love yourself. And it's like, if I didn't have that, I don't know if I could go through it. Cause at that point I absolutely hated myself. I hated everything about myself. I was a bad mother. I was a bad daughter. I was a bad person. Um, I was selfish. Like I just, I had nothing to offer. Um, that's what I thought at least. But so this, the, the place I was living was just a few blocks from this, um, meeting that was basically open 12 hours a day. It was open from like 7am to 7pm and there were meetings throughout the day and, and you could just go hang out there. It was, it was called the club. So you could just go there and drink coffee and sit, sit outside in the chairs. And, and it was, it was a safe place to go if you didn't have anything else to do. And so I was there a lot. I was going to a lot of meetings. I got a sponsor. I started working the steps and I started, um, feeling a little bit of hope, just a little bit. <laughs> um, I mean, I started making friends. I got to know people and, and in this meeting, they, you know, and I don't know if people are familiar with meetings, but they always say, keep coming back. And that was something I hadn't heard for a long time. Keep coming back. It was usually get out of here. Don't ever come back. Um, but I was here and keep coming back. And I was like, I like the sound of that. And I'm going to keep coming back. So I met my abuser at, at this meeting. Um, and I remember he picked up a, a one-year chip and I was like, God, that's incredible. <laughs> like the, he has he's got it going on. He is, you know, and he was smiling and laughing and everybody was hugging him and, and he was so funny and so charismatic. And he just, you could tell that he was, you know, he was sober and he was so much more put together than, than me, than how I looked or how I felt. And, 
And um, so after the meeting, I congratulated him and gave him a hug. And we kind of, it's like, I just felt this energy from him. And I, I know that he did too. And um, I had never seen him there before, but then after that meeting, he started coming more often. And every time we would talk a little bit and, and he would ask me about myself and I would tell him and he would encourage me. And, and, and it felt good to have somebody who like had a little bit of sobriety tell me like, you, you can do this and you're doing great. And, and I, I, it felt good. Um, and our chemistry just felt like electric. And before I knew it, we were going on our first date. And I remember him showing up late and I was kind of like, you know, annoyed. And he was like, I just feel like you're too good for me. And I, I was just really nervous. I wanted to cancel because I, I feel like I don't deserve you because you're so incredible. And I was like blown away, absolutely blown away. Cause here I am in, in the darkest time of my life. Um, feeling absolutely nothing positive about myself and and there's this there's this bright man in front of me telling me that that I'm incredible and that um that was something I hadn't heard in a long time either and I loved it it made it just it made me feel so good and he made sure that I mean he would listen to things I would say about about my son and missing my son and he would tell me I'm a good mom and he would tell me that I didn't, you know, that, that there was hope and he would tell me that I'm going to get everything I want in my life because of, of who I am as a person. And, and he wanted to help me. He wanted to help me by giving me rides to see my son. Um, in order for me to go see my son at his dad's house, I would have to get on a bike, bike to a bus stop, then put my bike on the bus and drive 30 minutes on the bus and then get my bike off and then bike another mile. And it was like, an hour process to get to see my son and then I'd see him for an hour and then I'd have to do that hour trip back. But if, if he, if he gave me a ride, it would be 10 minutes and it, and it saved me and it, it saved me so much time and it helped me see my son. And, and he made it seem like it was as important to him as it was to me. He also, you know, helped encourage me when, you know, my husband, my husband at the time would, would say, bad things about me or, you know, text me something discouraging. He would lift me up. And, and I feel like he was the, the thing that I could fall back on when I got home and had a hard day or the thing that I could fall back on when I was excited about something and I wanted to celebrate. It was like the alcohol for me. It's what I leaned on and turned to for every emotion. Um, and it was like, he either helped numb the pain or he helped you know, he would lift me up and, and be excited with me when I was excited. And, and it felt so good to have that. Um, I trusted him because he, he told me so often how, how much he wanted to help and how much he believed in me. Um, he did. I feel like there was love bombing because he had, he had a job. He had, he didn't have a lot of money, but he had a lot of money compared to me. And he would, you know, take me to hotels and like we went to uh, uh went like hiking in in state parks that you had to pay for and all of this stuff that involved money he he would provide and he helped me buy stuff and get stuff that I needed and buy stuff for my son and um because I couldn't do that at the time I had no money I had nothing so here is someone who's 
come in made your life a lot easier, specifically when it revolves around your child and getting to see your child, the thing that matters to you the most. And, you know, then you have this gift giving, giving as far as um, activities and, and dinners as, as well. So for you in your state, which is why they say, you know, when you're in recovery, you're in a very vulnerable place. And I'm sure everyone in recovery is in the exact kind of same state as you as being, I'm not lovable in any way. Everyone else hates me. So it becomes a lot easier for uh, someone to kind of come in as this wolf in sheep's clothing. For you, these things are uh, massive and it's starting to form a bond between you where you have, you know, really put that worth already of yourself into this person's hands. Um, And you're, you know, when you're going through recovery, the first thing they say is, you know, give it up to a higher power or the power within yourself and maybe to derive it from there. And here's a situation where this person has disrupted the system of what you're both supposed to be doing and you're already deriving it most likely here from him and not from what the system is uh, in place to do or or AA is is supposed to do for you. Exactly. The, and they say do not get into a relationship within the first year because that's exactly that's exactly why we're not we haven't gone through the steps yet and we haven't fully like understood ourselves. We have to learn to love ourselves before we can love someone else and and I was so in a vulnerable vulnerable place that you know, I was accepting these things because I, I genuinely thought he cared about me and that he he wanted to to do these nice things for me and didn't expect anything in return. So before we continue, there's just one thing I wanted to point out to everyone that I had in uh, my notes here that I forgot to say earlier. And it's about the little trick that your abuser uh, pulled when he said, I feel like you're too good for me. And this was a huge line uh, for two reasons. One, it's making you feel like uh, you are even more special uh, than you already feel because here's this guy that seems to be put together and you don't feel that way about yourself. Uh, but also uh, this abuser is actually telling you the the truth. He knows he's not good enough for you and he's saying it out loud. And this happens a lot uh, in, in abusive situations where they actually state this early on out loud. So I just wanted to point that out. So uh, now when it comes to, I guess, the early part of your relationship, in in hindsight, were there any red flags that occurred? Um, I, I feel like the, the first red flag that I saw was when I got a ride from somebody from the meeting. I think it was it, it was after a Friday night meeting and it was about 9.30 p.m. and I did not want to walk 
um, it was like, it's like in a college town. So there's lots of partiers and there's lots of homeless people. And it's like, I just didn't feel safe walking in the dark. I, I still don't. Um, and this man who was a friend, um, offered to just give me a ride. He dropped me off and that was it. I got out of the car. I got it into my house and I, and that was it. Somehow my abuser found out the next day and he, and he called me and was like, we need to talk. Like I heard that you were in a car with so-and-so and I was like, oh no, he just gave me a ride. Like it wasn't like that, but it's like, he was so mad. He was so mad at me and I didn't, I didn't understand. It didn't make sense to me. It didn't, I, I did not understand why he was so upset. It was just a ride, but, but I immediately apologized. I'm so sorry. Cause it's like, I, this man that's so kind to me. I don't want to upset um, because I cared about him. I genuinely cared about him and, and I didn't want to hurt him. I didn't want to hurt anybody, especially people who, who were in my corner and, and being so kind. And he, he made it seem like, oh yeah, people at the club were talking and they thought it was so disrespectful. And all these people told me that you got in the car with him and they couldn't believe it. And I was like, oh my gosh, like all these people are talking about me. And it, it made me feel really bad and really dumb. And it made me feel like, wow, that I must have done something bad if it's a bunch of people talking to me. Later, I would find out that that he would just make stuff up all the time. And that once I started actually checking with these people that he would insert into the story, they'd be like, I never said that or whatever. But so I I I no longer accepted rides from anybody unless it was a female. Um, and it got to the point where even certain females he didn't want me to talk to there was this one one girl I was very close to and we texted and we actually lived together in the transitional home and we had um she had a lot more time than me so she was kind of mentoring me and 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 I appreciated it and I loved her friendship but I think he got scared when I got too close to other people because I might open up to them and tell them about him or or you know whatever so he so he told me one time that this girl was hitting on him at a meeting um and I was like what and he's like yeah she said this and this and I knew she was a little she was a little bit raunchy sometimes and like I was like she's probably just kidding like she talks to people like that it's just who she is and I wasn't jealous and he's like well I felt disrespected like don't you want to don't you want to support me when I say I'm feeling disrespected and I was like you know what? You're right. Like I would want his support if I felt disrespected. So, so I told this, this woman, like, I don't appreciate you hitting on my boyfriend and our friendship after that was, it fizzled out and I didn't have that support from her anymore. And, um, so slow, he was slowly isolating me, um, so that it was only him that I turned to and only him that I talked to about things and, and trusted. Um, and I started um, not trusting all these people who were who were loving me until I could love myself. I started feeling like they were against me or that they didn't have my best interest. Um, I think I lived at that at that house for about four months. You know, I was really I, even though I was in this relationship that wasn't very healthy. I was starting my I was starting to pick things up in the program. I was starting to listen a little bit and and understand the program and understand my part in, in, in this addiction. And, but then it, it, it all just went away. Um, my abuser came up to me and said, 
I don't think I can do this anymore. I can't be with somebody who has a nine o'clock curfew and who can't, you know, has to get permission to spend the night with me and, and, you know, can't, I, I can't, you know, no men could come into the home I was living in. Um, and he, he was just like, I can, I need to have a relationship where we can like go home and cook dinner together and like, you know, watch movies together and fall asleep together. And, and he's like, so either you need to move into my apartment or we need to break up. And I had invested, you know, several months into this and, and had gotten so comfortable with, with being able to see my son and, and having the support system that he provided me. And, and I no longer had the other support from my, from my friends because he had slowly, you know, got them out of my life by, by manipulating me and making me think that they didn't have my best interest. And, um, so I felt like it was a no brainer. Like I have to move in with him. Um, despite the, um, counselors, you know, they, they tried so hard to tell me that this is not what you want. It may seem like it is, but this is not what you need. And this is, this is going to separate you from your program. It's going to separate you from, from, from your friends. And, and I just, I left. So when you left, did you leave angry at them? Were you telling them that you don't know what you're talking about? You know, we're in love type of talk? Or do you just, you know, look at them and say, see you later? Like, were you trying to explain uh, what was going on in the battle you were fighting? I feel like I, I wasn't mad at them. I understood what they were trying to do, but I feel like they didn't understand because they didn't know him. Um, and if they knew him, then they would understand. And like, this is different. Our relationship is different than all the other ones that, you know, <laughs> get screwed up. You don't understand our love. Yes, exactly. Um, so and there was a part of me that felt like I should not be doing this because I did have, you know, this divorce and I did have I was trying to earn back the trust of, of family and my, and my ex-husband and, and all of that. And I thought this could go really badly, but, but I feel like it's going to be worth it. Um, and then I got to his house and it, it was about a 10 or 12 minute drive from the meeting and from all the people I knew and from my safe place that I had been living. And I didn't have a car. I didn't have a license. Uh, there was no access to a bus. I would have to walk like a mile to get to a bus. And so it, that's kind of where I was like, oh my God, he's, he's isolating me. Um, and I got that sick feeling in my stomach where my intuition was like, I made a mistake because he would go to work. I had to, I had to depend on him to drive me to work. I had to depend on him to pick me up. I had to depend on him for everything because I, I had no way to go anywhere unless he agreed to take me. Um, and I felt trapped. I had, the, you know, that feeling in your gut where you're like, "Uh oh, <laughs> this was a bad decision. So how long into the relationship are we at this point uh, from meeting him to you moving in? I would say maybe three or four months. So in three to four months, he's sown the seeds of doubt in you about other people. 
He's isolated you before the move. He creates a bond already with the hero-savior love situation. You know, he's making your life easier. So you want this relationship to continue, obviously, because you're getting this love or maybe this addiction that you haven't gotten in a long time. And he's able to isolate you into his home even further. The support systems are really getting away from you because you're now relying upon him uh, due to the distance. So once this move has been made, it feels like all of your options are closing, like the door is shutting. You know, you have some clarity, like this was a bad idea, but you're there and the momentum has been created in, in the wrong direction. And it's tough to stop, you know, that snowball uh, if it's gaining speed and and going down a mountain or a hill. And and that's what's going on here. Absolutely. It was I felt like. Like there was no turning back. Um, And and not to mention, I didn't tell my ex-husband that I had left the, the transitional home and he was finally starting to trust me again and like let me see my son and without supervision and stuff like that. Cause it it was like he, I had broken my ex-husband's trust over and over and over again. I'm never going to drink again. And then I get drunk. I don't blame him for not trusting me. And it got worse because I, I had to now pretend that I still lived there. So when they would, when my ex-husband would like drop my son off to me, I couldn't be like, Oh, come to this address. Cause I live here now with a man. Um, I had to be like, okay, drop him off at the, at the house. And then I'd have to make sure that this guy drove me over there and I would be out front for them to drop my son off. And it just, he ended up finding out, I don't remember how, but, but he, he was not happy and he filed for emergency custody of, of our son that day. And I was absolutely devastated. I mean, it was it's like I went from feeling safe and feeling a little bit of hope and seeing a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel to just, and it was dark. It was, there is no hope. I'm a failure. Um, and here this man was to pick me up and say, you are not a bad mom. You are a good mom. Like they just don't understand our love you're going to get custody of him back. Everything is going to be okay. I am going to take care of you. We have got this. Like we can get through anything together. And, and at that point, it's like, I didn't know how to do it on my own, even if I wanted to. So that was, that was another, like that was another rock bottom for me. And it was in sobriety. (laughs) There were so many red flags that, that I could have been like, this is not healthy. Like I need to leave the way he was able to just manipulate me and, and make me think that he truly loved me and, and wanted what was best for me. But what he really wanted was control. And, and that's exactly what he got. Cause I was no longer like trying to, to earn, to earn my husband, my ex-husband's trust. Cause that was gone. Like he no contact. He did not want contact with me. So he, my, my boyfriend loved that I wasn't contacting him anymore. And so that, you know, he, he was getting what he wanted me all to himself. And, 
So that was, that was really hard, but he, but he also was able to give me so much support. Like he had this sponsor who was very wealthy and very um, well-known and active in the community. And, and he, he was somebody you could turn to, like, if you needed to talk to a Senator or something, you could call this guy and he'd be like, I know so-and-so and I'll, I'll talk to him. He, if you wanted to get stuff done, that was the guy to go to. And that was my abuser's sponsor. So he talked to his sponsor and he's like, listen, this is what's going on with, with my girlfriend. And she's, you know, she's a really good mom and she, and she, she needs help. And, um, she's working the program. She deserves custody and all this stuff. And, and so they ended up helping me find this, this attorney who was really, really powerful, a great attorney. I definitely could not afford her, but I went and talked to her anyway, just a, a free consultation. and. And when I told her my story and told her how I was trying so hard and I'm five months sober, but he just filed for emergency custody. She got tears in her eyes. She was, she, this attorney was, was crying in our meeting and, and she was so touched by like my determination to stay sober. Um, and she said, you know what? I'm not going to charge you a retainer. We're just going to follow up once this is over. And that was like, a miracle for me because I could not afford an attorney and my abuser made sure to let me know that he was the reason why that happened. You know, if I wouldn't have tried to, if I wouldn't have gotten you that attorney, blah, 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 you know, it's like, and so I felt like I owed him, like, like I can't, I can't leave you because if I leave you, I don't, I don't get to have this attorney anymore. Um, and that was my main goal at the time. So here is a moment where he is holding something over your head. In in the reality of this is that this situation of your child leaving was in part created by him. And now he's created the situation by having you or putting pressure on you to move in with him, thus you losing or having to go through a battle to see your child uh, once again, and now he's coming in here to be the hero of a situation that was created by him and then holding now that hero status uh, over top of you, which didn't occur before. So now there's this extra layer that's going on in this cycle that he's, as, that he's doing as far as being like the hero and the savior in the situation. Right. He would, he would create the drama and then he would save me from it. Um, and that, that happened over and over again. And, um, there was, I think the first, the first time that he got physically abusive, um, I don't even remember what we were arguing about. It could have been anything. Um, and I said, I'm leaving, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm going to go back to the transitional home. And I had my bag packed and I was walking out the door. And as I was about to walk out, he pushed me as hard as he could. And I tripped over my suitcase and I fell and there were stairs there. And it was like, it, it was a scene <laughs> and, and he caused that scene, but then he came down and picked me up like a, like a baby and cradled me in his arms and carried me back to, to the bedroom and laid me down and was just sobbing apologizing, had his head on my stomach. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to hurt you. And it's like, 
again, he created that situation and then saved me from it. And I could tell, like, I thought at that time that these are genuine tears. He is so sorry. And he, he would never do that again, because look at how sorry he is. He's crying and he's apologizing and like, he's heartbroken that he hurt me. And, and that's, that's only something that would happen you know, only somebody that loved me would, would feel this way. And so I unpacked my suitcase and I stayed. Um, and there was, it kind of turned into like, I ended up consoling him after he pushed me down the stairs. I was like, it's okay. You didn't mean to come here. Please stop crying. It's going to be okay. We're going to get through this. You're fine. And that's, I didn't know, notice that that was happening. I was the one who should have been consoled at that time. And, and, um, it was the other way around. Um, and that's, that's the thing that just kept happening is anytime, you know, in the beginning I was sad and I was talking about missing my son and I was talking about struggling and he would tell me it's okay. We're going to get through this. And, and suddenly it turned into, if I complained about something or said something was bothering me, he would find something else that was worse. And I would end up consoling him um there were times where I would I would cry and say I miss my son I miss my my baby this isn't right and he would be like it's that's so insensitive to you for you to say that when you know that I have two kids that I haven't seen in five years and um (laughs) it was his choice to leave those kids and they were old enough they were they were teenagers and, and he could contact them and it wasn't a there wasn't like a a court document saying he couldn't see them. And um, it just wasn't the same situation. And we weren't talking about that. Like I was voicing something that I was sad about and he would flip it around and then I would be consoling him and apologizing. So here's a situation where your feelings are being minimized. They are being invalidated. He's found a way to flip the conversation around. So it is about his feelings because this is what these people do everything is about them and and their feelings and their control yes yes i was silenced i was my feelings were invalid um and and it 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 progressed with him um and he would take it to new extremes so like if i decided i'm going to go to a meeting with some friends and I would go halfway through the meeting, I'd get a call from him that said, I'm in the hospital, you need to come. And so I'd like get in a cab or ask somebody to drive me there. And he'd have some sort of weird illness that nobody could figure out what it was. And he was in pain and they were giving him morphine and he was just like in excruciating pain. And, and I'd be so worried. Um, but those situations, I mean, he was in the hospital more than anybody I've ever met in my life. Um, and, and it, 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 any time, and it always seemed to be any time I was doing something for myself or doing something healthy or doing something that didn't involve him, he would suddenly get very ill or, you know, be in pain and be in the ER. And I feel like I got sick of it and I, I did not want to deal with him. Um, but it's almost like it happened so like gradually that like he was there for me and made me feel good about myself and and 
and was my everything and my best friend. And then suddenly it turned, he turned on me. It was like alcohol, like alcohol was there for me for everything until suddenly it wasn't. And I had no idea how to get out of this Um, because in my mind, I still loved this, but I knew it was bad for me. Um, And and so it's like these, the physical violence um, started happening more. And um, there's a few instances where like he, he got mad at me and, and held me in a chokehold up against the wall and my feet were off the ground. And I remember thinking like, you know, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I was freaking out. And next thing I know, I must've blacked out and I was on the ground and he was on top of me. And I think it kind of scared him because <laughs> I passed out. And, and then again, with the tears and the crying and he's so sorry. And, and he doesn't know why this happens to him. And, 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 um, I, I was terrified and I knew the only thing I could do at that point was just agree with whatever he was saying and tell him it was going to be okay. And that, that we're going to work through this. But in my mind, I was, I was ready to be done. I wanted to get out and I was starting to think of ways that I could get out. Um, and that night I, it's like, I couldn't just immediately call the police because I was afraid he was going to kill me. I texted 911 and said, I, I need help. And somebody called me and I answered it and pretended like it was my sponsor or something. And I said, I'm going to go outside and talk, talk to them. And, um, I asked the police officer, it was a female police officer. And I said, I'm in an abusive home. I just got choked. I, I'm afraid that if you come here, he's going to kill me. I, you know, I, I told her my, the situation as quickly as I could. I said, I just, can you come here and arrest me for unpaid child support or just do something like that? Just come arrest me so that he knows, so that he doesn't know that I called you so that he thinks that you're just coming to arrest me. And they did it. The cops showed up in the middle of the night, arrested me and took me to the, to the police station. And he was out there sobbing, pleading with them, please don't take her. And this was just a couple of hours after he had choked me to the point where I passed out. Um, and they took me the, to the police station and I finally felt like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to get out. I'm going to do this. And it's like, they just, they just threw all this information at me and all these steps I had to take. And, and we have to do this and then we have to do this. And do you want to press charges? And, and, and then I was like, okay, well, I'm in the middle of a custody battle is this going to be like public record? And they said, well, yeah, if you press charges, it. and I was like, I can't do that. I can't have this on my record. If I'm trying to get custody of my child back, like it's not going to look like I'm, I am a fit mother if I have this on my record. And, and so they took me back to that place, to that house where I had just been choked. And that was one of the many times that I that I had the door open and I was almost out and, and I couldn't do it. I went back. If you were put into that position again, would you do it the exact same way or change your mind? I feel like, I feel like I, I would, I would have gone through with it and understood that like, um, I can't get better in this relationship. So like, I, 
I'm not going to get custody of my son if I stay in this relationship. It might make it take a little bit longer if I if I file this police report, but at least I'll be alive. At least I'll be alive to take care of my son. Um, I feel like when the door opens, get out. Because it just gets worse. It's like it just progresses. Um, it didn't get better after that. It didn't, not even a little bit. I ended up getting my own apartment. Like anytime I would go to work, I would look up apartments. Um, and I was getting promotions at work and, and, and making a little bit more money. And so I, I got my own apartment and I told, I told him that I, I needed to be closer to work. I needed to be closer to the meetings. Um, and, and we would be okay. Everything would be fine. And I knew that once I got into my apartment, I could, I could say, we're done. I don't want to be with you. So I got this tiny little apartment that was, it was like 400 or 500 square feet, something like that. And it was just one room. It was a studio. So like I could take two steps from my bed and I'd be at the kitchen sink, but it was mine. It was my place and it was my stuff. And it was, I could lock the door and I could be safe. And, and I, I, for the first time I felt like I could breathe and I, I could be myself. I could be myself. I could go on Facebook. I could, I could call my friends. I could go to meetings. I could stay up late if I wanted to. I didn't have somebody watching my every move and I felt so good. Uh, How did you take it when you moved out? How did you go about that? I I was at the point where I had to start just lying to him all the time to to save myself. Um, I had to. I think I told him that for this custody, my lawyer said that I that this is not going to be good if I stay living with you. Like, just in order to get custody, I need to just get my own place, and like we will work things out. We'll make it work. You're only ten, fifteen minutes away. We'll see each other. Like, we're going to make this work. Um, he believed it. He, I mean, he was skeptical. He didn't like it, but it's like, I, I made it seem like, okay, this amazing lawyer that you got for me is telling me to do this. And I need to listen to her, even though I don't want to, you know, all of that. And, and it, it was convincing. I mean, thankfully, not thankfully. I mean, I, I don't wish this upon anybody to lose custody, but thankfully I had that to, to turn to and say, oh, I have to do this because of this custody case. And I, I do want to throw in there that I did not stay sober through this. Um, there were multiple relapses. Um, and I was really struggling because I wasn't going to meetings. And, and I noticed that he was drinking and that he'd come home and smell like alcohol. And then that's when he was more violent. And, and, um, and so it, it just got really bad. Um, in that aspect too. He ended up after I moved into that apartment, I think he could kind of see that I was separating myself from him a little bit and, and moving on. And he didn't like that. He, he didn't like it. And he didn't know how to, how to, to convince me to come back or convince whatever. So, so he had to create a situation where I, where I felt sorry for him, which is what he always did. And he told me he had cancer. And I was like, well, maybe that's why he's been in the hospital nonstop with all this pain. And, and, uh, and, and he told me that he wasn't dealing with it well and that he was just drinking all day and that he's going to lose 
his apartment and that it all stemmed from me moving out and he and and he couldn't deal with it so he had to drink and all this stuff and and so he lost his house and he was like suddenly he was like outside of my apartment with cancer with nothing i felt like just oh my heart just dropped i finally got away i finally got this place and it's like yes i could tell him to just get out of there and leave but it's like he also had this whole attorney thing over my head and um I mean I was scared of him so I let him come in and I I told him he could stay there until he found a a sober home to go to and I made it very clear that he needed to to get out of there because I could not have him there otherwise things would get really bad for my custody case so he he ended up moving out and moving into a sober home, which was like just so shocking to me that he would actually do that and not just stay in my apartment. But this custody thing was so convincing, which again, I'm, it's like, it's a blessing in disguise. And there were, it was just over and over and over again, where I would get out and he would come back and I would get out and he would come back. And, and he ended up getting kicked out of that sober home because I showed up there with all of his stuff, which is what he told me to do. Like, can you go get all this stuff and bring it to me? And I was like, okay, perfect. This will be the end. And he won't have any reason to come back here because he's going to have all his stuff. And I brought it there. And apparently he said that they people saw me there and that women aren't supposed to be there. And he's not supposed to talk to women. So they kicked him out, which to this day, I, I don't even know if he actually got kicked out. He might have just left on his own. Um, and made that up, but he showed up at my doorstep with all this stuff again and said it was my fault he got kicked out and that he needed to just stay there. It was just back and forth. Um, I feel like the the beginning of the the actual beginning of the end, um, where where it was at its absolute worst, when he showed up at my doorstep with his bags, he was immediately drinking again and using drugs and and I was relapsing occasionally with him and it just would get so bad if we were drinking and and then I think I think something happened where he got mad at me and and he left the apartment and and the next day he's like I'm gonna come get my stuff I need you to have all my stuff ready to go and I was like thank god I put all his stuff outside my my door in my apartment and and I, I was gonna leave and lock my apartment and try to leave before he got there so that he didn't, you know, try to say anything to me or whatever. But I heard him coming up the steps as I was about to leave. And so I just I locked myself in, in my apartment and I was trapped. If he got in there, I was trapped. So I ended up like pushing stuff in front of the door so that he if he tried to get in, he wouldn't be able to. And and he was out there and he, I could, he was talking and cussing. I could tell that he was drunk and um, it was like 9am or something. And, and then he started like trying to break in, slamming on this door. And, and, and I had nowhere to hide. This is a 500 square foot apartment. So, so I hide in, in the, in this closet, like pantry area. And I ducked down behind the trash can and got as small as I could. And, and he broke in and and I remember him coming around the corner and like putting his hands in the pantry and his hand like brushed my hair, but he like walked away and I'm like, oh, thank God. And he went into the bathroom and was screaming my name. And then he came back to the pantry and he, and he grabbed me by my hair. He found me and he pulled me up and he, you know, it, it got violent. He was on top of me on the bed, slamming my head in the wall and, 
and you know just telling me how terrible I was and um it's like I I didn't know if I had any way out of this because he had he he was so intoxicated he had no control over what he was doing and and he took out a um like a razor blade knife and he had it to my throat and and he said you're gonna die today you're I'm either gonna slit your throat or I'm gonna throw you out this 10-story window and and at that moment, I was just like, God, I got so close. Like, I, I immediately started thinking, like, oh, I'm supposed to go visit my family next week with with my baby, and I'm not going to be able to. And I think that's where things kicked in, where I was like, I need to do whatever I can do right now to save myself. And so I I, I looked at him, and I just said, I love you. I'm so sorry. I don't want us to break up. I don't want you to get your stuff out. I love you. I'm so sorry. And and he he put the knife down. And and I was like, whew, I just, I took a breath, and I knew that at least for that moment, I was saved. And um, I said, we are going to talk about this tonight. I have to go to work. I can't miss work. I promise we'll talk about this tonight. And, and I left and I didn't have to work for like three or four more hours, but I grabbed my, my stuff and I ran and I, you know, I went to work and or I went to um, a coffee shop by my work. And, and on the way there, I was thinking, I, I want to drink, I want to drink so bad. Um, and by that time I had been sober seven months and my, and my life was getting back on track because he had been mostly out of the picture, but, um, I thought as I left that apartment, I thought I'm either going to a bar or I need to go somewhere safe. And I went somewhere safe and I sat there and, and just thought about what the heck I'm going to do. And this woman walked up who I had met a couple times, um, at meetings and she was like, Hey, uh, I recognize you. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I recognize you too. And, and I pretended to, to not, um, be traumatized and, and I tried to like, you know, make pleasantries and whatever. And, and she invited me to a women's meeting. She said, there's this new women's meeting and it's tomorrow at, at 630. I would love it if you came. And and I put it in my phone in the notes. And um, I just thought, oh, God, I hope I'm alive to go to that meeting because I really want to go. And um, I just counted down the hours till I could, till I could get there. And, and to this day, I think that that woman saved my life because at that point I was I still didn't know if I wanted to drink or or stay alive like I I didn't know um sorry um and uh so that day I stayed in contact with my abuser and he said I've contacted rehabs and and I just need $1,500 to get in. And and I promise I'm only going to stay here until I get $1,500 and can get in. And I was just like, I didn't know what to do. I mean, I I didn't know what to do. And I just figured I'm going to take, I'm just going to play it by ear. I'm going to take it hour by hour and just see what happens. And I, I went home that night after work and I told him I would meet him outside because I could tell he he had been drinking again and he was also like addicted to crack. So I, you know, he had been doing that. Um, I don't know for days or something, but um, 
I told him I would meet him outside and we could talk about it. And, and I, I, he was there and he was in his car and he asked me to, to come give him a hug goodbye. You know, at that point he was like, just in the self pity mode where he, he was, he's like, I don't need help. I'm just going to go kill myself and all this stuff. And it's like, he said that a million times. So I didn't believe it. I told him I would not give him a hug because I was terrified that he was going to pull me into the car or something. And, and, uh, he, he reached out and like snatched my shirt and like pulled me towards him. And I was screaming and we were out in the street. So I was like, somebody has to hear me. Um, and, and I got away and he's chasing me down the street and then he gets me by my hair and is like whispering in my ear that he's going to kill me. And, and, uh, finally people started coming out and they called the police. And, and when he realized that there was a crowd of people around him, uh, he, he got into his car and he, he sped off and the police showed up and I said, I am filing a report. Like I am, this is it. I can't do this anymore. Um, and I, I filed a report and I, I knew there was tracking. He was in a work vehicle. I knew there was tracking and I was like, just go get him. Um, and, and that was like, that was, that was the beginning of the end. He did not come back to my apartment anymore. He was not in my life anymore. Um, physically, but he was, he continued to torment me for, for months and months after that. But I, I always tell people my sobriety date is January 8th, but um, I feel like July 25th, that day when he had the knife to my throat is like, it's the day that I officially chose to live. And I went to that meeting the next day and it was, I mean, that meeting has changed my life. I continue to go to that meeting today. I, my best friends are in that meeting and it it was like, it was just all these things laid out in front of me that day that some were terrible and some saved my life. And, and um, I'm just so, so grateful for that woman who, who showed up at that coffee shop at the exact time that I needed her to. How you doing? I'm good. I didn't realize that I was going to pull that out of me, but. Um, it's crazy that talking about all the terrible things he's done, like, didn't make me cry, but, but the part about, about getting help is the part that is so emotional because that was so hard. Um, and it's, it's, they describe alcoholism or addiction as a disease that tells you you don't have a disease. And I feel like being in an abusive relationship is similar because it's like I have an abuser that tells me I don't have an abuser. And it's alcoholism is cunning, baffling, and power, powerful, and abusers are cunning, baffling, and powerful. And it's like, it's just, it's so similar, the addiction of drugs and alcohol to to the addiction of of other people who who can manipulate you and like god i mean i've seen women who weren't um at rock bottom who got manipulated by 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 men and um so it's scary so 
after after all of that after after that um event in the street i don't really know what happened he kind of went off off the grid and i got a new job and i got a a new apartment and he didn't know the address and it was like god my life was finally starting it was finally starting over i had a fresh start i was earning the trust of my ex-husband back I had all my friends back. I had my life back, my my independence and and confidence and I was feeling pretty good and and I don't know how it happened. I don't it's like we kind of ran in the same circles cuz he was also in recovery, but he found out I had a new apartment and he knew where it was. I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. And he started sending threatening text messages saying that he was going to kill my ex-husband and he was going to kill me. And he wanted to make sure that, that my son did not have parents anymore. Like that's how bad he wanted to hurt me so bad that that's the length he was willing to go. Um, because he said he blamed me for his, for his downfall, for his using again and, and drinking and all of that, losing everything. He blamed me. Um, so I, I called, I called the police. I finally was like, I had some confidence. I had some, you know, I was like, I can do this. I am, I am worth it. Um, I finally felt like I was worth it and, and, and it was going to be okay. So I called the police and I showed them the text messages where he said he was going to kill me and they would, they can continue to come in as the police were reading them. And so they, they wrote a report and, um, I think this was in November. So the the last incident happened in July when when he was hurting me in the street and this was in November and so it was like gosh I thought it was over but um the I said I'd like to file a restraining order and the police told me that I needed at least I think it was two or three police reports in order to to file a restraining order and I was like are you serious like does this guy have to kill me before before I can get help um, so I, I just felt so discouraged. Like I, I, I just felt discouraged, but this officer was incredible. And he said, where were you when he was texting you earlier? And I was like, I was at my apartment and he's like, okay, well, that's a different, um, that's a different district. That's a different jurisdiction. So we can file a police report with that jurisdiction. And that'll be the, the, the amount of police reports that you need in order to get the restraining order. So when you get home tonight, call the police and file a report with them. And I was like, okay, I got this. Like, thank you so much for that loophole. And I had hope. So finally the restraining order was in the works. I figured out where he was staying. He was at a, a, another rehab, like close by. And, and I told them where it was and they were like, well, we can't issue a restraining order at a rehab facility. I don't remember what the, what the law was or, or what, but they couldn't give it to him. And I, it was just, blow after blow I was like just make this be over um I feel like those things that I did even though they didn't seem like like they were productive or like they went the way I wanted them to they scared him enough because he knew I responded and said like I filed two police reports I have a restraining order that's about to be issued and all these people know about it. I was working for somebody who worked, uh, who was a, a state senator at the time. And, and I opened up to him about it. And I said, 
this person knows, this person knows, your old sponsor knows, all these people know, my attorney knows. And, and, and so suddenly he got scared. Like, and I, there's, there's the quote, what lives in the dark dies in the light. And I was bringing this man in the light and, and, and that killed it. That killed it. It was over. Um, I didn't have to get him arrested. I didn't have to get a restraining order. All I had to do was tell people and, and bring it out into the open. And I feel like this is such a, um, domestic violence is so like taboo. Like it's so, I felt so much shame. Like I was so ashamed of myself for allow for allowing this man into my life, for allowing him to stay for so long. So it's very shameful and it's hard to tell people about it because of the response that we get. It's like, why don't you just leave? Well, <laughs> I wish I could tell you that. Um, but I think it's so important to bring these people in the light because that's where they die. And that's where my abuser died is in the light. Um, I found out so many things after I got out of that relationship. He never had cancer. Um, he he was just he was like a hypochondriac. He just used situations like that to manipulate anyone around him. Like if people were mad at him, suddenly he'd be very, very sick. So then they'd all feel sorry for him. And and it worked. It worked for a for a long time. Um but it was just it was over as as it, it was it was just over. Um and I had my life back and and shortly after that, I, I finally, my, my husband and I finally finalized the divorce. It was on uh, September 11th, 2015. We finalized the divorce. Um, we drove there together. <laughs> we went out for lunch. My, my ex-husband and I went out for lunch after. He was proud of me. He, he was slowly trusting me again. And... Um, and I, I would I would keep asking, and you know, I was paying child support for years um, before he before he ended up trusting me. But I feel like as soon as I got out of that relationship for good is when I came back to life. Like I was back to myself and and he could see that and he he could, you know, he could feel that and and before I knew it, I had joint custody and and uh, at the end of all of it, my my attorney that that fancy attorney that I got, she was like, she's like, it's like night and day. You're a new person and I'm so proud of you. And she goes, I just can't charge you. I can't charge you for this. Um, and it was, I mean, that was incredible. That was amazing. Uh, it would have, she was, she's like $400 an hour. <laughs> yeah, I was making $10 an hour at the time. There was no way I would have ever paid her off. And to this day, I still text her on my sobriety anniversary and I just say, you know, I'm still doing it. Thank you for believing me. Um, and we remain friends to this day. And um, so so life is good. Um, I'm remarried now. I my son is 12. Um, he's, he has no memory of me ever being out of his life. He has no idea that I lost custody. Um when he thinks back to that tiny little crappy apartment that I had 10 stories up, I think in my, in my head, I think, wow, what a, what a piece of crap. Like that place was a dump. It was so bad. But when he 
talks about it. He's like, God, I loved that little apartment. I loved it so much. And and it's because of the memories we created there. And, um, and I'm so grateful that, that this abusive relationship didn't impact him at all. I didn't bring this man around my son at all. I didn't allow it because I knew, I knew it wasn't good. Um, but by the time I knew it wasn't good, it was, it was too late. Um, but I'm remarried. Like I said, he's a wonderful man. He brings me coffee in bed every morning. I wake up and it's hot on my nightstand. He's incredible. Um, and, and this past relationship caused some, some trouble in the beginning. Cause, cause my husband now is the first relationship after my abusive relationship. Um, and even to this day, if he stands behind me in our, we have a really tiny bathroom in our, our master bedroom. If he stands behind me or like blocks the doorway at all, I, I feel trapped. Um, I feel claustrophobic and, and I kind of just have to be like, please move out of the doorway. And he understands. He he's just like, oh, I'm so sorry. So there's still things that that, you know, I that are that are here that are that are affecting me. I think there's a little PTSD, but but I have hope and I have love in my heart and I and and uh here I am sharing this story, hoping that other women know that that you can get through it and that that there is hope, there's light at, at the end of that tunnel. And if you had any words of wisdom or advice for people listening, what would it be? I guess I would just say, trust your gut. If I would have trusted my gut, I never would have moved in with him. And this never would have happened. This man told me who he was. He told me he was a good person. He told me he was, you know, he all these things, but but his actions spoke louder than his words. So if somebody shows you who they are, trust them. Well, Dakota, I want to thank you for being here with me today, with us today. I know how difficult it is to uh, tell your story and you had to go through a lot of reliving your trauma uh, by sharing your story with us today. So everyone is uh, giving you a really big thank you. I know your story is going to help validate people's experiences and your quick thinking in a lot of these scary situations is going to help save someone's life. So, you know, this is going to be aired on October 31st, the last day of Domestic Violence Awareness month and everyone here is is happy you are are out and you have your whole life ahead of you you have your whole uh, child's life ahead of you and you're alive and that's the most important thing so once again thank you really for being here with us today and sharing your story Thank you so much. And I was thinking about Domestic Violence Awareness Month and I was like, gosh, I hope this airs in October and it's going to. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be able to share this story. Um, This is my first time sharing the full story. So I thank you for providing a safe space for me to do that. Well, thank you once again, Dakota, for being with us today. And if you want to be a guest like Dakota was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. Uh, There, read all of the instructions and either fill out our guest form and press the submit button or send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. Also at our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com, there is our support group. So if you need support, we have our very own safe social network. Click on that support group button. 
We have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, uh, Thursday afternoon, and Saturday night. We have forum boards for you to post on and for your uh, peers, people like you, survivors like you, to answer you and guide you and validate your experience. We have episodes that never made it to air, and we have ad-free episodes on there as well. So please do join our support group today. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at domesticshelters.org. Org. They have articles and resources to make sense of what you are going through. They have email addresses and phone numbers for every shelter, every agency, no matter how big or small t- your town is. Please do visit domesticshelters.org today. It's a great free resource. It's a great organization. And now that is it for this episode. And from myself and Dakota, we hope... You have a good night.